Welcome to the 134th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing okay, Dan. How are you doing? Oh, I'm hanging in there. So it may or may not be obvious from the release schedule, but um, as of this recording, we kind of had a very unusual for us two-week hiatus. Uh, we typically record pretty much every week, and... You know, I, I had gone on vacation, and um, in the past, I had recorded on vacation. But uh, this time, unfortunately, I had a family emergency. I had a, an unexpected death in my family. In fact, it was pretty rough, I got to say. I was with my whole family, and, and my dad passed away from a heart attack. And that kind of turned my life upside down for a couple of weeks. And I'll probably talk a little bit more about uh, that experience and my dad at some point on the pod. Uh, this week wasn't the week just because we kind of had all of our content already planned. Uh, I will at some point because it did have a very strong impact on me. But we are back, Brian. Yes, and I'm so sorry to hear that, Dan. I can only imagine. I mean, we've only had a week off basically we're but we're back here in the studio two weeks after the fact and um yeah i mean i'm glad to be here with you yeah i'm glad to be back too you know um my dad one of the things my mom has said is that what he would want is us to persist and to keep living our best lives and that's the best way to honor him so you know that's what i'm doing here is i'm showing up uh, for myself and for you and for the audience, I'm happy to be here because it's what I want to be doing. So Sounds good. Here we are. And what we are here for is Movies About Making Movies Month. And this is, I think, the second official week of this month. My first official pick. Although we kind of teased it a little bit and then I kind of inadvertently had a pick related to it. Before the month started, when we talked about Babylon and singing in the rain. Right. That was kind of a satellite pilot thing. Yeah. Um, but last week, or last episode, I should say, was the very first official episode of Movies About Making Movies Month. And we watched and discussed the film Super 8. That's a Spielberg and Abrams joint about these kids that make a movie. That one's kind of like the sci-fi blockbuster movie about making movies. And this week I have the old screwball comedy movie about making movies. And that is the 1941 film written and directed by Preston Sturges entitled Sullivan's Travels. So this was my very first time seeing Sullivan's Travels. What about you, Brian? This was the second time for me. We watched it in one of my film studies classes in undergraduate. 
at William and Mary. So it's been a while. That was probably back in like 2011. Gotcha. So it, it was fresh for you too then. At least somewhat fresh. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I felt like it resonated a little more this time. That's good, yeah. But it's certainly part of the like classic film canon. Turn on Turner Classic Movies, you might see this. I want to talk a little bit about that here in a minute, but the one thing I'll say as we lead into this is that uh, pending our <laughs> momentum here at the end, I also want to diverge and talk about another comedy about people making movies. And in this case, it will be the TV show Party Down, specifically the fifth episode from the second season entitled Steve Gutenberg's Birthday. If we're still up for it after we talk about Sullivan's Travels, I want to talk about the other uh, another comedy that's movies about making movies. Oh, yeah, I did watch that. I didn't forget. It's up on Hulu. You don't even need to add stars or live TV or any of the other stuff. So I got some strong feelings about Party Down and spoiler, they're very positive, strong feelings. But let's first talk about the 1941 comedy. So you're right. This is a part of the film canon. In fact, the AFI, the American Film Institute, back in 2008, selected it as the number 61 greatest American film. That's... There's a lot of films out there. Number 61 is really high. It is pretty high. Have you ever seen at uh, Barnes & Noble? I think it is. Borders is the one that closed, right? The big bookstore megalith. Yeah, Barnes & Noble still exists. Okay. Yeah. Barnes & Noble. They have a big DVD section at the back, and they have one rack that's like numbered slots, 1 through 100 of the... I think it's of the AFI. Okay. No, I haven't seen that. Um Barnes & Noble does stock Criterion. That's like a big thing. Um, I follow a couple of Criterion dedicated forums. I'm not especially a collector myself, but I find it fascinating, the people who obsess over them. Yeah, they have some nice DVD sales displays. They got a whole rack of Mystery Science Theater. Lots of stuff they sell, or try to sell at least. Yeah, it's like the last bastion of physical media, you know? Not really, but like, one of the more visible places for it and like a place where you can just walk in and there's, oh, you can buy classic art films here. Oh, Ingmar Bergman. How many places in the world can you just walk into a American store and they have a fancy Ingmar Bergman box set? You know, not too many places. So a lot of cinephiles really dig that aspect of Barnes and Noble. Yep. I'll also shout out FYE for your entertainment at the... Ferrer Oaks Mall, but that has really scaled back. It was a secondhand DVD store, and now it's like overrun with Funko Pops. Like two thirds of the store is Funko Pops, and there's one little rack, whereas it used to be the whole store was the was the DVD aisles. Yeah, I've been fond of Second and Charles recently, the used bookstore uh, that I don't even know how. They managed to stay in business because they have so much stuff. I guess everybody kind of knows it's a nice place, but it's like a huge store. It's enormous. It blew my mind when I discovered it about two years ago. And it's really close to my new house. I've actually probably been there like eight times in the last year since I moved into my new house. But yeah, several of my Christmas presents to you have come from 
second and Charles. Oh. I guess there's only been a couple years, so primarily that's where they've come from. <laughs> uh, the only downside, though, is that there's not a lot of turnover, I find. Like, I'll, I'll look at a rack, and then six months later look at the rack, and all that's gone was whatever I took off it, and not a lot is new. I've noticed that, too, and it makes me wonder how they stay in business again. But, yeah, they probably have much higher margins on the new stuff anyways. Right, and they do sell a lot of new stuff. So. Yeah. And board games and things. But anyways, Sullivan's Travels. So, um, I don't know. I can't remember how much I talked about this in our Singing in the Rain episode. My theory is that people who are in the institutions that decide what are good movies on these lists are people who make movies or who are heavily involved in the movie business. And therefore they are particularly fond of movies about making movies. Put another way. I feel like singing in the rain and probably Sullivan's travels get a little bit too much love or maybe get elevated beyond what they're, intrinsic quality is relative to other films of similar era and pedigree simply because they are about making movies. And so it like tickles the nostalgia receptors of people who really love movies or people who are in the movie business. It's almost like a, a cheap nostalgia trick. It's not quite that because I, I do think it's a great film and I think um, singing in the rain is a great film, but I feel like they maybe get a little overinflated just because they're movies about making movies. I think you're on to something. It's one of those cases where you could say something equally wise on either side of the argument. Like you could say, write what you know, but you could also say, don't navel gaze. Yeah, you, you don't need to be Stephen King and have like a writer protagonist all the time. Or, you know, you got to mix it up. Right. I think Stephen King is an interesting one. The one that, that I think about is the two Green brothers, John Green and Hank Green. So John Green has said, like, if when he, he's writing his stories, he, like, only writes them in places that he's been. Like, basically every one of his novels has taken, in a, taken place somewhere where he has spent multiple years of his life or perhaps just several months of his life, but, like not necessarily imagine stuff that's like out of his comfort zone. Like he, he said he decided to set the climax of his last book right outside the Starbucks where he was sitting writing the book that he was writing. Um, and then compare that to Hank Green, whose two novels are sci-fi, totally invented alien stuff coming in. And it's just like the exact, it's totally speculative, you know? And so it's just interesting how you can get good stories from either perspective, you know, and it, I think it ultimately comes down to how good is the story and how good are you at telling it? You know, that's kind of the most important factor. I agree. But yeah, um, another thing is I was actually kind of surprised that in spite of what I just said about how it's like, popular because it's how, how perhaps its legacy is enhanced because it's about making movies that the making of the movie itself was actually not really that much of a factor in the story. It was like a scenario because he was a filmmaker, but like it wasn't really about making movies. Like he's not making the movie during any portion of this, except like 
the pitch at the beginning and then at the end when they're getting ready to make it. It's not it's not about making a movie. It's about him wanting to get life experience so he can make the movie. Yeah, it's like a proof of concept project that he's undergoing to then make the movie. Right. But I, I think it fits. I think it was a good selection. I, I don't think it's disqualified from the the theme month, but it just wasn't quite as on the nose as I was expecting it to be. But why, why don't we just dive into it here? So here we are. Oh, actually, before we do that, just real quick, Preston Sturges. Um, he, he's, I think this film is a little bit reflective, um, introspective for Preston Sturges. So he was a filmmaker who really this was right in his peak he had a few years where he had a couple of big hits and well-regarded movies and uh sullivan's travels is one of them he was born in chicago and he had a pretty long career but really most of the movies that we know come from the first half of the 1940s including this one and maybe we can talk a little bit more about what this movie says about preston sturges he's best known for his comedies but i think here he especially when we start talking about the theme, he was trying to figure out why he was making comedies and why that was something that was resonating with people. But anyways, this movie opens with our star. He's, his name is Sullivan, as in the title. By the way, I'm assuming the title is a play on um, Gulliver's Travels, right? That's got to be what it is. That would be my guess. Yeah. So his name is John Sullivan, and he's played by Joel McCree, M-C-C-R-E-A. Um, I guess it could be McCray. I think it's probably McCree. I need to, I don't think I've seen him in anything before, but he's got kind of a classic Hollywood look to him. Did, did you know him from anything, Brian? I think really just this. Yeah, I'm just going to look it up just to double check. Yeah, this is the only thing I know him from. It looks like he paired with... Sturges at least one other time in the Palm Beach story the next year, but he uh, he's got kind of like a, a square jawline here, but um, he's playing a Hollywood director here, and he is much like Sturges himself, a Hollywood director known for making comedies. Um, but we kind of find him in the midst of an existential crisis. He's talking with his producers about the next movie he wants to make. And he's kind of grown dissatisfied with his life. He He's making these financial successes and they name drop a couple of fake films. So there was one that was, I forget exactly what it was called, but it was a play on the Gold Diggers series. Did Have you ever seen any of the Gold Diggers musicals, Brian? Yeah, I, I think, is there a Gold Diggers in 1933? Yes, mm-hmm. I think that was the first one. I saw that one. I also saw a Broadway melody of, of 1929, which we talked about back in the Singing in the Rain days. But yeah, I've seen at least that one Gold Diggers. And he decides that he wants to make something more meaningful, to do something more with his life. And so he's going to make a serious art film that probes the, the difficult lives of the impoverished. And tries to find some authenticity there. And the name of the film that he wants to make is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And 
I don't think it's much of a secret where most people would know the name of this film, this film within a film. And that is from the Coen brothers. They made a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Brian? Right. That was the first PG-13 movie I ever saw in a theater. Went to a friend's birthday party. We watched that one. I think it showed up on your 100 film favorites, at least your 2013 edition. That's right. I can't remember if it quite made the cut for the update. I think it did. I think it's towards towards the 100 end. Uh, that's a good one. Maybe I should swap it with another Coen Brothers pick in my slate, but I like it. It's got a really great soundtrack. Right. So the Coens have cited this as one of their favorite films, this being Sullivan's Travels. And as soon as I knew that, it really clicked for me that this movie is doing a lot of things that the Coens like to do. There's like some farce in there and misunderstandings and lots of ironies and just kind of a slightly bleak sense of humor where like the comedy bleeds into pathos and like darkness. Yeah. Like suddenly something dark and violent will happen. Yeah. Definitely a lot of Cohen DNA here. I really like the Cohen brothers. I've loved, I think every single movie I've seen of theirs, I was a little medium on the lady killers, but I still would have that at a five or higher. I think on our, is a good scale. I got to catch up with their entire filmography because I think that's one that would be worth it, at least based on the experience that I've had so far with them. Yeah, I would say similar. But uh, I also thought it was interesting. So this film came out in 1941, and this is like before the new wave. So the European new wave, I guess the French one was the first one, or maybe it was the Italian one. I, I get that mixed up. I haven't dove into that portion of film history just yet, but it's it's a few years before Rome Open City and then like seven years before it really kicked off with Bicycle Thieves in 1948. But basically what he's describing is uh, wanting to do in this film is what Bicycle Thieves ended up doing. H have you seen Bicycle Thieves, Brian? Oh, wow. I haven't. I really should. But that's super insightful that this is kind of foreshadowing cinema verite type stuff, new wave type stuff. Right. Because it's like he we'll we'll talk about the scheme he comes into here in a second. But it is you're right. It, like it's reminiscent of cinema verite. <laughs> but so anyways, the producers are basically like, what are you talking about? You crazy person like you. You make these ridiculously profitable and well-loved comedies. Why are you trying to make this dour film about poverty? And they try to talk him out of it. They're like, oh, you don't know anything about being a poor person. You couldn't make a movie about that. And so then the light bulb goes off and he's like, aha, I will go live with the poors and learn what their struggles are so that I can go make a movie about them. And they're like, well, that, that's not what we meant. What we meant is go make a comedy instead. And this is a pretty funny setup. Um, it's it's a talky setup. It's witty. I really liked it more so than the first time I watched it so long ago, just because it feels like it could just as easily almost be made today. I mean, this is coming fresh off the heels of the Great Depression, but like this discussion where 
Sullivan says, oh, I want to make something that speaks to the common man. And they're like, what do you know about the common man? You went to <laughs> Yale or something. You know, he's got this Ivy League education and he's basically had a silver spoon in his mouth his whole life. And just that the people who are making the media are, you know, the elites and they don't really have that common experience. Right. And this is something I've thought a lot about, like artists who are popular for a long time and get wealthy and then like live the high life because they're uh, like famous creators. Now I've thought about it more with musicians like, Bruce Springsteen is one I've thought a lot about how much of his writing was like very down to earth. Bob Dylan was kind of that way too. And Taylor Swift is a more modern example. It's like, how can they still relate to a common person? Like when the content of your lyrics being relatable is a significant portion of your appeal, how can you maintain that when you're one of the most famous artists in the world for 30 years on end, you know, it's like you have no connection to my life at that point anymore. And they found different ways to deal with it. Like Bruce Springsteen kind of leaned more into like the American myth portion. And Taylor Swift just sings about her love life and creates these kind of fictional characters too. But I don't know. It's, it is interesting because yeah. What, what does this dude know about the Great Depression was another good insight by you there, Brian, because I hadn't even thought about it from that angle. But this is just on the tail end of, you know, right after the, the Dust Bowl and all that. Right. It's in a nebulous period because America's not in the war yet. It feels weird that it doesn't mention the war or at least not at length. Yeah, that's true. But very much the Great Depression was on their minds. One other thing I want to say about this project that Sullivan is embarking on wanting to, you know, cast comfort aside and go live with the poor. I mean, in some regards, it's like a Buddhist thing. Like, I, I think this is what the Buddha did. Like he was, you know, he had the, the prince upbringing and, and he didn't know suffering. And then he saw suffering and he's like, I need to put aside worldly things. Uh, but anyway, the, the part that connects more to me is rather than Buddha this uh, wanting to like live off the grid. I think I talked about it back when we covered the Grizzly Man documentary a little bit, but I've always had kind of an affinity for people like uh, Chris McCandless. Uh, so maybe someday we should do a whole dedicated um, Into the Wild episode. But like the, the people who go and abandon civilization, even when everybody they're talking to says this is really stupid and it's not going to end well. And it really tends not to end well. But yeah. I think there's something captivating about that narrative. McCandless is a, remains a divisive figure. Like people have a lot of different opinions on him. There's no like settled consensus on him. Yeah, nobody's medium on Chris McCandless. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, even just in like the last month, there was some family that went to live off the grid and they just found their bodies, so. Wow. It's a recurring theme. Yeah. Well, and then also there was that young woman who was murdered by her boyfriend and they were like going camping for extended periods too. Like, I guess there's also this thing in our brains that people who live off the grid are, like, connecting to their more base instincts, too, or something. I don't know. 
Right. Hashtag van life. But yeah, he he embarks on this. He dresses in hobo clothes. He gets the stereotypical hobo things, kind of jokingly like getting the bougie version of it. Right. He's got two butlers. <laughs> yeah. And they're following him around, too. So he's like walking, but they're I think they're like driving behind him. It's kind of goofy. Yeah. So he's got like this whole press team, people from his, I guess, not a network yet, but a studio. Uh, this whole support crew of media following him in this, uh, it's like an RV. It's like a mobile broadcasting studio, except a little too early for that. So they've, you know, they probably got radio equipment in there and stuff like it's online, but, but not really. Right. Like a mobile command center. That's true. This dude could be making a uh, YouTube video, you know? If if this were made X years later, with like a hundred, not a hundred years later, eighty years later, exactly. This is this is Logan Paul covers the Great Depression. <laughs> oh, good God, that would that be depressing? Possible episode title, maybe. And around this point, I guess he's trying to ditch the crew or something. And kind of all of a sudden, the movie, which had been very like what I kind of think of as a stereotypical screwball comedy, lots of wordplay and repartee. And it's really more about the talking than anything else turns into this kind of almost slapstick, goofy movie all of a sudden. It's like Benny Hill. Yeah. Like they're flying, bouncing around the uh, bus and things are spilling on people's heads and stuff in the bus. And that... This movie got a little sillier than I was initially expecting. It's like it's got some some slapstick and stuff in it. What did you think of this shift in comic tones as the movie went along? Did it strike you as jarring, Brian, or did it feel natural? It was a little out there. And this isn't the only time we get a tonal shift. No. Like as the movie goes along, it shifts a few times. Also, like, the one black character that we've seen up to this point is this, like, bumbling, very broad comic chef who works on the bus. And it's like, is that the only instance of an African-American character that we're going to see? And ultimately, no. We get some more varied portrayals, which surprised me based on this being our first example. Yeah, definitely felt uh, retrograde at first on that. So before long, Sullivan is, uh, you know, he's he's getting used to the the life of being a poor man. And he goes to a cafe. It's like a kind of a, I don't know, a diner, I guess. And who does he bump into there? But an actress uh, played by Veronica Lake, who is not the star of the movie. But if you were to look at the marketing, you would think she is the star of the movie. Yeah, she's got this like caricatured face of on the poster with her like, I mean, a beautiful caricatured face, not what you might expect when you hear a caricature, but like a stylized hair down over one eye sketch that very much dominates the poster. Mm -hmm. And here's where I should note that uh, Veronica Lake, I've never seen her in anything before, I don't think. And she is like absurdly beautiful just like even among movie stars crazy beautiful and her voice something so enticing about like the timbre of her voice like 
I just wanted to watch her when she was on screen and listen to her. And um, she had an in- interesting and slightly disappointing career, I think. She kind of burned bright for like a decade, and then she had trouble getting cast after that. I think she was an alcoholic. And her sweet spot was she played femme fatales in film noirs. She was like in two or three movies where she played a femme fatale. And she's like exactly what you think of when you think of the femme fatale, like the Jessica Rabbit type, except not a cartoon, but still kind of looks like a cartoon because she's that ridiculously attractive and charismatic on screen. Am I getting carried away, Brian, or did you have this reaction as well? Yeah, she's really good looking. And, you know, I was trying to think where I had seen her before, and I'm looking at this filmography and not recognizing any other movies. And then you said Jessica Rabbit. And it's like, okay. That's where I saw her, you know, <laughs> definitely an element of her went into the Jessica Rabbit design. Yeah. And here she's playing a an act down on her luck actress about to head home from her failed Hollywood career. And this was immediately having me think of La La Land, where Emma Stone goes through the same struggle throughout that movie and makes a similar decision at one point in that film. And both characters ultimately have their fortunes turned around, at least professionally. But we'll get to that, I guess. It's also kind of like the opening or early on in Aladdin. Disney's Aladdin is what I was thinking of, where in that it's um, Jasmine is like escaping out into the streets and disguising herself as a peasant. Oh, okay. Um, But here it's the guy doing it. And he runs into her and she's like authentically struggling and he's trying to like let on that he can make her career because he's actually a famous director. But it like comes across as what? What are you saying? You know, you're a poor person like me. And so at this point, I thought the movie was going to be like, okay, we're 25 minutes into the movie at this point. The movie's maybe an hour and a half. I think it's pretty close to 90 minutes sharp. And so she'll probably find out, like, maybe when the the second act hits the third act or maybe, like, 15 minutes before the movie ends. But it's really only going to be, like, three scenes before she figures out who he really is. Because, you know, it seems like that we've hit the promise of the premise and that's going to be the rest of the movie. But it ends up not being. So I don't know. Yeah, he's pretty cavalier about who he actually is. It's like, all right, things are getting rough. Time to go home. Come with me. And then they're chilling at the pool. Yeah, so his, his he has this idea where he's like, oh, I'll drive her around. Where do I get a car? Well, I'm a wealthy director, so I have a nice car. So he concocts this story about how he used to know a director or something like that, or used to be one, and gets his fancy car. But then he gets arrested for stealing it because he's dressed as a hobo and uh, doesn't look like a fancy director would driving a nice car. And then, yeah, all of a sudden he gets out, he gets out of the clink and then brings her to the mansion is like, oh, yeah, I'm the director. And that was less than 10 minutes after we first met her. So um, she's pretty much in on it for the rest of the movie, too, um, which, again, the, the pace of it kind of surprised me because I thought this was going to be like a a farce for the rest of the film of like confusion. And we do get a little bit of that, but not in exactly the way I was expecting. Right. There's kind of some jumps and starts in this movie. There's like plateaus and then we're off on some other arc. So now one thing about Sullivan is that he 
is in a sham marriage, which they describe as being for tax purposes. His financial advisor encouraged him to do it so he could file joint instead of single uh, when it comes to federal taxes, but that it basically ended up costing him more on, like, I guess, money he had to pay his wife to keep her happy. But it's not, it's not like a marriage that has fallen out of love, at least the way he tells it, that it's been a matter of practicality from the start. And, you know, he's like, well, I'm married, so we can't be together, which didn't really ring authentic to me, at least based on the Hollywood headlines we see these days. But, you know, I, I guess it at least puts a barrier between them immediately getting together because they basically immediately have chemistry and attraction to each other here. A lot in this movie reminded me of when we watched It Happened One Night. Okay. Where it's the the guy and the girl traveling around. And in that case, uh, the woman was engaged. There was like the aviation tycoon or whatever that she's like going to get delivered to at the end of the story. I forget how that one, what ends up going down with that. But I know they have the cut away together when they finally spend their night together. Right, the walls come down. Yeah. Eventually they talk a little more and they decide, "Oh, what the hell? We're going to go we're going to we're going to actually still do his plan, but except Veronica Lake's going to come with him now." And by the way, Veronica Lake never named. She's always the girl or the actress, which I thought was interesting. It's like almost Tyler Durden or something like that, you know? Or the bass player. And they have her dress up as a tomboy for a bit, like a, putting on a hat and baggy clothes so you can't tell that she's Veronica Lake, you know? And then this, so now they're living the poor life, and then all of a sudden this is just like a, a hijinks adventure with these two people, and it becomes a train movie, Brian, because they're hopping on a train riding around for a while. It's like it could have fit in a different one of our theme months. And this whole bit is kind of told by this montage where we see all these little sketches of stuff going on with them while they're on the road and like trying to learn what poor life is really like. Right. But also there's like a growing number of people that we see who are really experiencing poverty. Yeah. And so he he's kind of achieving his mission of like actually seeing it firsthand. Cinema verite style. I like that. That was a good comparison. And I kind of like this. I want to talk a little bit more about the theme of this movie and like the the takeaways from it. But I think it does a pretty good job of kind of navigating the balance between authentically depicting the challenges of poverty, but also like being an example of essentially poverty tourism. That is to say, like a movie that tugs on the heartstrings just by showing poor people. It's really kind of investigating that idea to some extent. Like before that was even really that much of a trope. Or maybe it was. I don't know. I don't know enough about 1940s, 1930s films to know whether like was was that a major theme in movies then or was it kind of more escapism at that point? And this is kind of just foreshadowing what would come like like we already talked about. Do you have much sense of that, Brian? Is this like reacting to a trend or is it just predicting a trend? I'm not really sure. Like if it is reacting to something, maybe it's like in newsreels 
which is not a thing that really exists anymore. But I, I, I more think it's it's something that was just in the culture at the time because everybody had just come through this Great Depression. But I, I don't know. Sound off on our Discord with your knowledge. And I think also uh, a big piece of this is just Sturges himself, like knowing what's going on in the world and wondering like, why the hell are we just making these dumbass escapist comedies when people are like struggling to get a roof over their heads or fill their stomachs with foods, you know? Yeah. It's a smart and thoughtful movie, which is maybe what makes it weird when, you know, so much of it is bouncing around in a bus or, or what have you. But I think it's got some big ideas. Yeah. And then I forget exactly how it happens. There's another sort of like misunderstanding where he hops on the wrong train or something like that. But they end up back in Hollywood. It's kind of a like a joke that he can't ever get away from this wealthy Hollywood life. And he just keeps getting brought back by various things. Something will happen and he'll almost like respawn back at his mansion. And that keeps happening until it doesn't. Right. Well, I think that's also kind of metaphoric for like the personal struggle of people in Hollywood. It's like uh, they just keep getting brought back. It's like I try to pull myself away from the business, but I just keep getting sucked back in. You know, I feel like it's kind of literalizing that because he's like, oh, I hopped on the wrong train and now I'm back in Hollywood. But that's kind of how people who are stuck in show business feel to some extent. At least I imagine. I don't know. Also want to point out that um, this movie shot in black and white and some of the cinematography is really pretty. Like I remember some of the night photography, like they're walking along a river and it's really pretty. And some like uh, long shots with deep focus of like the crowds and the poverty, like the soup kitchen and stuff. Yeah. And there's this shot where they're like sleeping on a hillside with this big mob of of unhoused people mm-hmm. and they're just kind of all like laid over top of each other. I thought that was quite a shot. So some, some real thoughtfulness in how this, this film is constructed. It's, it's an attractive film, but yes. So now he gets in another argument with, the woman and they get separated again. I think here she's wanting to this. She's just found out that he's actually married at this point or something. And so he kind of goes out on his own again to do his, his thought exercise, his experiment some more. And this is where things turn dark. So he's kind of had his awakening that, you know, he really should be using his money to make a difference in this, this tough lives that these people in poverty live. And so he's walking around like handing money out to to various people he sees on the street. And one of those people like follows him down to try and rob him. And they have this scuffle on the train tracks. And the person who was chasing him down gets hit by a train and dies. And Sullivan gets injured as part of it. And there's this whole thing where like Sullivan's ID is sewn into his shoe. So if he ever needs to identify himself... Yeah, well, there's a couple steps to it because like he's sleeping at one point and one of the guys in this throng of of poor people sees that he's got nice shoes and steals the shoes. 
And then another dude, I think, or maybe it's this, I guess it's the same guy, clubs him over the head and, and then runs off with the money and gets hit by a train. Right. Because he had the shoes, when they, they find this dead body, they assume that it's actually Sullivan. And so word spreads that, that Sullivan has died. But in fact, Sullivan's just been knocked around and gotten like a concussion and has been arrested um, as a vagrant and uh, gets thrown on the the chain gang because he like hits another guy with a rock. And so now he's incarcerated, too. So now, like, it's gone from being just an experiment to like he's actually living a life where he loses his agency and loses his his comfort because he's really got to work on a chain gang here. So this is, I think, another one of the tone shifts that you were talking about, Brian. Absolutely. And I had kind of forgotten that this happened and it kind of opens up the world of the story a bit. So this is kind of a tangent. It's got a big cast. Like there's lots of different environments that the characters kind of wander through. You know, there's all the bums on the train and at the soup kitchen, they're meeting people. And then suddenly we're in a prison movie and there's people there that we haven't seen before. But this one guy who is kind of like an aide to the warden or something, or like a, a guard, I think he works for the prison, but he's like this little old man. and His name is Trusty, or that's what they call him is Trusty. And this actor, I kept recognizing him. I was like, what, what's the movie that this guy is in? And it's not going to mean anything to most of you. But I one of the DVDs in my Christmas DVD box is called The Great Rupert. And it's about a squirrel. Well, it's kind of about a squirrel. And maybe this will be a goods pick at some point. But what sets the action in motion is a squirrel. And this actor is the guy who trained the squirrel in the first place and then sets it free. And once it's free, it like kicks off the events of the plot. But anyway, that's who this dude is. Yeah, I like this guy. So a couple of thoughts on what you're saying. So I, I definitely agree with all that. Um, this this one like assistant warden guy, he's actually like the nice warden as opposed to the mean warden or whatever. I thought he looked and sounded like the guy from 12 Angry Men who also voices Piglet. And at first I was like, is it him? He's kind of got a squeaky voice. Uh, yeah, that's that's John John Fiedler. It's not it's not him. Right. But yeah, it's kind of I was really thinking of the Shawshank Redemption, which is my main prison movie reference. I know there's been a lot of them. Particularly, like, they throw him in uh, solitary confinement, and it's really brutal, but it made me think of how it's really brutal in Shawshank. And they have a co another thing from Shawshank that's going to be pivotal here in a minute is they have, like, a group movie screening for all the different inmates, which is a thing that happens in the Shawshank Redemption. And I was trying to remember, is it Veronica Lake that gets the iconic hair flip? But no, that's um, Rita Hayworth, because the Shawshank original story was actually called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Although the poster changes a few times. I know at one point it's uh, Raquel Welch. Yeah. 
I, for, I forget exactly when it changes, but I think the last one is Rita Hayworth, the one that, well, I won't spoil the movie. No, no I think the first one is Rita Hayworth. Okay, gotcha. But yeah, so they, they have this shared movie screening, and it's actually run at a a black church. And so we get this black reverend character who uh, is also there kind of speaking to the, the dignity of the people there, too. So what, what did you think of this? You had brought up race earlier, Brian. So what did you think of this kind of U-turn having this other set of black characters here towards the end? I thought this was a really powerful scene. The way that the preacher comes out and speaks about that they're going to have the prisoners come into the church and this is really like the first group of empathetic characters that we've seen you know that they really do open their hearts to the the people who i mean may not even be deserving of the mercy like prisoners at least one thinks are in prison for a reason uh but these um these churchgoers are willing to open open the church to everyone. I agree. I thought this was a, a really nice moment. And yeah, I mean, it kind of, it feels insightful in the way that it is kind of subtly playing with the ways that different groups of people are disenfranchised and, and lack agency and control of their surroundings and what they can do in this world in, in different ways it, it really does feel kind of thoughtful I, I agree the photography here is is cool too because it's nighttime again and the prisoners are like getting marched across this swamp it's like you have all the ambient sound of the the night creatures in this kind of like humid summer wilderness as they're being marched toward this little one room chapel and it's got the church music really evocative yeah it feels like the movie kind of escalated its artistic ambitions its visual storytelling ambitions here for we're now probably 20 minutes 15 minutes from the end of the film and so yeah he he gets there and they do a film screening but it's of a cartoon. It's like a, a old Disney Pluto cartoon that they show. And everyone in the audience gets kind of like a reprieve from their their uh, plight laughing at this this cartoon on screen. And it cuts around to all these laughing faces, like back and forth between what's on the screen and the laughing faces. And... Um, it leads to this revelation for Sullivan that, hey, you know, I, I want to make a film that's meaningful to to poor people, to people living this hard life. And I wanted to make like a serious drama about their lives. But really what I should be doing is just making comedies that make them laugh, that let them escape their problems for a bit. And we see him get this revelation when he's like looking around at all these laughing people. I got a lot of thoughts on this, Brian. Yeah, it was weird. It was like phantasmagoric. Like these reactions are out of step 
out of proportion with what we're seeing on the screen. Yeah. And fake laughing, like over the top fake laughing has an element of like uncanny creepiness to it. It's like a fun house or something. Right. Yeah. Like if you know automaton history, this is like uh, there's there's this one. I think it's called Laughing Sal. Just this. It's this thing that you like drop a dime into and it's just a big lady. And she's like, ha 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 ha. And it is really spooky. Very weird in the moment to the point that I feel like the movie knows that it's weird, but it plays it at face value. Like this revelation is genuine and there's not really any additional layers to it. I don't know. I'm not even like I have this message is also kind of weird to me. Right, because it's like, the thing I should be doing is what I've been doing all along. It's it's sort of a no place like home thing. Right. Well, he's like, yeah, so uh, I've been kind of otherizing these poor people, and my goal was to make a movie that no longer otherized them. But now what I've learned is that I shouldn't worry about that. I should just figure out how to make them laugh and let them be these kind of distant other class of humans that operate outside of my sphere. And that's okay. I, as long as I make them laugh, I am doing something. And I at least appreciate that Sturges is like trying to reckon with his art. I'm not sure he quite nails the, the takeaway, but it, it does at least feel like he's genuinely grappling with like, is there value in just making people laugh? Should I be doing more? I don't know. But like making people laugh is a service in and of itself. I feel like that's like maybe a generous reading of it, of the theme here. But that's kind of what I took away from it. And I don't know. I read some things online. Like some people are really cynical about this and like feel like the ending kind of undercuts what the rest of the movie is trying to do, which I kind of see. But I, I also feel like it, it more or less works, even if it it. It's not 100% there, but it more or less does. Yeah, I think it works okay. I mean, the movie's got to end at some point. There's a conventional length to motion pictures. And it doesn't feel like as out of left field as some of the beats. I mean, like, there's, there's like I said, fits and starts, twists and turns. I think it works okay. And maybe there's something to how, like, garish the laughing is and maybe that indicates that there's some introspection here like the story is not over and wrapped up in a nice little bow maybe that's giving it too much credit i can't really say but now that he's had his insight he's more determined than ever to get out of prison and get back to his his cushy director life so he can make more of these comedies for these people and so he finally figures out how he can get out of prison is by confessing to his own murder, which would get his picture in the newspapers and everybody would realize that it's actually him. And this goes pretty much exactly as planned. And and almost everybody's happy to see him alive. The one person who's not happy to see him alive is his wife, who has gone off and married his financial planner. Yeah, the one who pitched that they should get married in the first place. Yeah. 
And so now their their marriage is null and void. And so he is free to not only keep making his movies, but to get together with Veronica Lake, the the unnamed actress. And I think he says, like, rejuvenate her career. I can't remember if that's explicit or just implied. Right. Yeah, he's going to help her out. Oh, and another funny thing is the the producers are like, well, now you're you've you've hit all the headlines about you've actually lived the chain gang life. Now you can finally make that honest drama about the plight of poor people. And he's like, no, what I've learned is just got to make those comedies and make them laugh because that's what I can do to make their lives better, which is doubling down on on his revelation earlier, which, again, I I I don't 100 percent buy, but I think it kind of works. It's a way to tie a bow up on the story and kind of mirror the opening in an amusing way. So it's kind of straddling the the genuine insight and kind of the comic and narrative uh, conclusion here. Right. So two things about this. You mentioned Chain Gang and that rang a bell for me. I remembered another film that we watched for the film history class. You asked, is Sullivan commenting on anything that came before? Another movie we watched is I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Did you ever see that one? No. Okay. So this is from 1932. It says directed by... Mervyn Leroy starring Paul Mooney and it's about a guy on a chain gang as the name suggests so that was another one that it was in the back of my brain even if the title was not on the tip of my tongue but the other thing I was going to say is if anything undercuts the ending of this movie the fact that he can just wave his celebrity status as a get out of jail card <laughs> yeah it's like, talk about two classes of people. Like, okay, no, no, I'm tired. I'm tired of this charade. <laughs> Let me out now. He did hit that guy with a rock. The thing he was convicted of. That was like a real thing that happened. It's not just the murder. It's like, he's like, oh, we can't have poor people in prison. Let him get his rich lawyers on this and get this thrown out, you know? Yeah. Yeah, everybody else he was in there with is still in there, so... Speaking of the chain gang, probably my second favorite prison movie is Woody Allen's first film, Take the Money and Run, which is a hilarious parody of uh, prison movies, basically. It's a mockumentary. I want to bring a Woody Allen movie onto the pod at some point. The only reason I haven't yet is because I don't want to talk about Woody Allen, um, even if I like some of the movies, but we could probably venture there at some point. What did they say on The Simpsons? I love Woody Allen movies, except for that nerdy guy who's always in them. Yeah, the uh, squirrely guy or something like that. I forget what he says. Yeah, something like that. It's it's less so him being a neurotic fella and more some of the problematic stuff that's come out since that. It's I don't even know if it's kosher to say that one enjoys Woody Allen movies anymore, given that he's still trying to make movies and makes it more complicated. But... Again, we can litigate that at a future date. But the last thing I wanted to say about the ending here is after all this happens, the movie actually ends with the strange montage of the people laughing again in the background, kind of like floating around over Sullivan and Veronica Lake's head. It's like remembering the the laughter. It's kind of a, a bizarre ending too here. Yeah. 
another movie we got to watch someday is The Crowd, when I'm psyched up enough to talk about that one. But kind of the moral of that is like individuality is impossible. And the ending is it ends on a, a laughing theater crowd. So it's like ostensibly happy, but the camera pulls out and you just kind of lose the protagonist in the masses again. And it's like, oh, this is not so different from the like soulless crowd shot that we got at the start, even though people are smiling now. It also struck me as very David Lynch, uh, particularly Mulholland Drive, which may or may not be a movie that comes up again uh, in the next month or so. Um, we'll see if I get around to picking that one for movies about making movies month. But there it is like very deliberately played for unsettling, uncanny effect. But yeah, that is Sullivan's Travels, 1941 Preston Sturgis film. So Brian, any we're gonna rate in a bit. What what are some of your some of your overarching thoughts before we pivot to to party down and then to our signature section? Oh, sure enough, we got to talk party down. So on this my second watch of Sullivan's Travels, I was generally vibing with it. Me too. Like I I felt like it had something to say, not just when it was made, but even now. Yeah, I I think what you said that it, you could see this movie being made nowadays is super true. Like it it has aged well, I would say. Minus some of the weird message stuff at the end, but like just the topic and the tone I feel like works pretty well. Yeah, I mean you could you could picture somebody somebody going into the the urban sprawl nowadays and, and running into trouble right with this mindset. And I feel like that story has been done. I got to rack my brain, but like the struggle with authenticity and as opposed to being like a, a rich privileged person that's ripped from the headlines now for sure. Another thought less funny than I was expecting. I got to say I laughed, but like it kind of turned more introspective and dramatic in the second half than I was prepared for. I thought it was just going to be like a screwball farce all the way through, but it's, it's got other layers to it. And I was kind of feeling the opposite. I remembered it being just kind of about the great depression. That was the bullet point that, that I had etched in my brain. Oh, this is a great depression movie. Uh, and then they're bouncing around on the wild goose chase in the like super RV and so there are some zany moments that I hadn't really remembered. Interesting, yeah. But we'll throw a rating on that in just a minute here. But I want to talk about Party Down, which actually ended up being a, a better pairing than I expected because it actually has some similar themes on its mind because Party Down was a TV show. It was made by Stars S-T-A-R-Z, which is like a third-rate HBO knockoff. Two seasons were made, in one in 2009 and one in 2010, that had 10 episodes each. It was, like, immediately a cult hit. It got, like, historically low ratings for at least that time period. Now there's, like, a new show every week, so who knows how many actually watch it. But, like, 
some episodes were premiering with like five figures of viewers, you know, like whereas the typical unit of a show, at least in those times, was like in the millions, you know, it's like, oh, if you got 10 million, that was a big hit here. We're talking like, you know, 75,000 people were, were watching this. So it, it got very little actual airplay with regards to people watching it because who even has stars and like who had it back when it was less common to have every single premium streaming service or whatever. Right. So how did you come across this show? I had never heard of it before you wrote a blog post. So I actually um, picked up on it, I think when it was in the middle of its second season and its second season ended up going down weird. Stars kind of just dumped the episodes on like their weird pay-per-view thing and they eventually showed them live. But I saw like the 10th episode on their free website ad supported thing before I saw the ninth episode of the second season. I don't know. But the way that I discovered it was I was reading a whole lot of TV criticism and movie criticism. And because it was on a lot of critics radars, I heard about it and I managed to track it down and watch it and really, really vibed with it. It has become one of my favorite shows ever. And yes, it had a legacy sequel season. Just this past year in 2023, it was six episodes um, with largely the same cast. So, Brian, I think I talked you into watching the first two seasons. Did you ever watch the third season this past year? I have not gotten caught up with the new stuff, but I did watch the first two back probably in 2014 when you wrote your blog post. Gotcha. Yeah. So in 2014, I was writing. I did my top 100 everything series where I wrote about a lot of movies, TV shows, music, books that I love. The idea was all of my favorite things in one jumbo list. And I had this pretty high. I had this like in the teens or 20s or something. And I probably would put it on my Mount Rushmore of TV shows, like at least ones that define me and like the shows that I don't shut up about. It's like Party Down became one of my missions, like getting people to watch it basically. And I feel like you've heard me talk about it so many times, Brian. I just feel like it comes up between us a lot. I don't know. Although we've never discussed it on the pod, I don't think. Except in, in tangential references. Right. I held off mentioning Breaking Bad this episode. Although the scene where Sullivan is walking around handing out dollar bills and it goes south, is that was a pretty Breaking Bad moment. Something very similar happened in the show. Oh, interesting. Which you bring up just because that's the thing that you that's one of the things that you talk about a lot. Precisely. Things I talk a lot about. Gotcha. OK, I was wondering what was the Breaking Bad connection to Party Down. But so Party Down was produced by the creative team actually behind the noir TV series uh, Veronica Mars. And the premise of Party Down, which I have skirted around talking here, I'll now say it is it follows a catering team that goes to all these parties and the catering team is made out of Hollywood people who are trying to make it, but have not yet made it. So it's almost like an upstairs downstairs thing. Every episode is a new party. So we get a new like crazy event that they get to host with this new set of guest stars. It's like, Oh, this week it's JK Simmons daughter's sweet 16 party. And Oh, this week it's a bunch of rich, California prep kids hosting their young Republicans club or different things like that. 
And then we have the main cast who are the caterers and they're all like poor and struggling and they hit a bunch of different niches. There's like a pretty boy actor. There's a writer. There's an older kind of veteran actor who just never got her big break. And our leads are Adam Scott and Lizzie Kaplan, who you will know from this pod, if you've listened closely, are two of my all-time favorite actors. Both of them, whenever, if they're just in the cast, that's like an auto-watch for me, basically. Adam Scott and Lizzie Kaplan. So Adam Scott, in this movie, he, he plays a guy named Henry Pollard, whose big break is that he was in the equivalent of like a Budweiser commercial from the early 90s when they had dumb slogans that everybody would say over and over again. And here he's in a different beer commercial and his phrase is, are we having fun yet? Which has been one of the enduring things of this show is if you hear, are we having fun yet? It's a reference to party down. And Lizzie Kaplan, meanwhile, is a struggling comedian trying to like break it on something like SNL or a talk show or something like that. And so they have an on and off relationship over the course of the series uh, Lizzie Kaplan does not appear in the third season. So that was one reason I was skeptical about the third season. Although I will say the revival season, the third season did end up being pretty good. Right. Because Lizzie Kaplan was on to bigger and better things like now you see me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, actually, a lot of the cast has, has hit it bigger. Um, I mean, Adam Scott is kind of a household name now. He was kind of the backfill for originally it was going to be Paul Rudd who played the Adam Scott part. And then Paul Rudd was too busy. So they got Adam Scott to do it instead. Um, I think they might have even filmed a pilot with Paul Rudd in the Adam Scott Scott role, which I would definitely watch if I could track down. So what I'd like to know, Dan, is a little more about the third season where the characters stand you know, 10 years later and they're still in the same place because that's the risk you run resuscitating a show like this. Um, and one example for me is the show Workaholics, where it's three like college roommates who are slackers and, you know, struggle to achieve anything. And that's kind of the source of the humor. But then by the time you're in like the, the sixth or seventh season and the status quo mandates that nothing can ever change, it starts to get depressing. And implausible. And I think that's a really good point is the, the third season. So we kind of follow them and it's just a recurring thing where it's like, oh, are they about to actually get their break? And then we see kind of different versions of how much or how little they get their break. And um, I almost don't want to tell you because the first episode is really about like checking in with everyone. It's like, oh, how is this person doing? How is this person doing? But basically... Some of the characters have made it, some of them haven't. So Lizzie Kaplan's character, the story is that she did get cast on SNL and then became like a kind of crossover comedian movie star who also gets cast on a TV show or something like that. And then Kyle, the pretty boy, gets pulled into like a MCU knockoff type thing. And um, meanwhile, some of the others like uh, the Martin Starr character is still kind of in the same place. Um, and there's a few other twists and turns there, but Adam Scott has basically remained given up on his career by the third season, which to me is disappointing because one of the great things about the first two seasons is that it ends on this kind of hopeful note 
I don't want to spoil exactly what it is because I think you should just go watch it. But it, it's a perfect ending in that it, like, it doesn't tell you that he makes it, but he's kind of one in the spirit of the show because he's decided that he's going to try and make it. So, yeah, it does become depressing that we're now 15 years in the future or whatever, 13 years in the future, and he just hasn't made it. But they replaced Lizzie Kaplan with Jennifer Garner, who plays a film producer and is a sort of romantic interest for Adam Scott. Um, so I recommend the third season. It, it does end up being pretty funny and pretty good, although I feel like it retreads the first couple seasons a little too much. But what I like about it is that it feels like a very realistic depiction of struggling in L.A. and how it is kind of like a grind that only a handful of lucky few make it and everybody else is just kind of beating their heads against a brick wall, trying to make something happen and and trying not to give up. And do they eventually give up? I don't know. And yeah, they're poor. They're like slaving away for there's, it's a recurring joke that like their tip is going to be like $10 per person or some like ridiculously low amount that they are always looking forward to getting their tip at the end of the party. But the one I, I wanted you to watch in particular, Brian is the fifth episode of the second season, which is Steve Gutenberg's birthday which the premise here is they did this once each season where they basically reframed the episode so that the caterers themselves got to be the attendees of the party. And so in this case, it actually guest stars Steve Gutenberg. And after he had forgotten to cancel his party, they still had like the catering booked. And he's like Steve Gutenberg playing an exaggerated version of himself is like, oh, I forgot to cancel. And since you're here, let's just celebrate together and you can invite your friends and I'll host a party for all of you, which is not very realistic, but when the show is kind of downbeat in general, having this change of pace is very fun and satisfying. Yeah. And I mean, the explanation is that he's like already paid the money. So, you know, he's already in the hole. So might as well actually have some kind of party. And just that he's a very eccentric guy who would do something like that. Right. What's your favorite Steve Gutenberg film, Dan? Uh, I need to think about that. I mean, it's probably this episode. It's not a film. I mean, he was in the three men and a baby and three men and a little lady, but which they make some joke about in the in the episode. But the one for me is short circuit about the robot who comes to life. Oh, nice. And he's kind of the human like guiding. Well, one of the humans like guiding the robot into sentience. Right. And in the Simpsons episode, when they have the stonecutters and they're talking about all the conspiracies that the stonecutters run, one is who makes Steve Gutenberg a star? Because he's, he does just kind of look like a normal dude. Right. And in particular, there's a couple of scenes in this episode that I just really, really love. So Martin Starr plays this really jaded and cynical sci-fi writer who assumes that everyone is too dumb to get his hard sci-fi. And here he's working on a screenplay with his friend, played by Christopher Mintz-Plass, a.k.a. McLovin. Uh, so we got a super bad cameo here. And they're kind of working on the screenplay in the middle of the party. And so what we get is the group gets together and acts out one of the scenes from the screenplay. And it's like hilariously wooden and bad and cheesy sci-fi. And then a few minutes later, they reenact it after like 
they've decided to touch it up and embrace some of the heart that Steve Gutenberg is encouraging them to add. And all of a sudden, it's much more lively when they act it out. And it's just really, really charming. And I really like it. And it's like a very happy episode, even though it's got still got some dark stuff on the current on, on the, the edges um, as an undercurrent. But just getting to see that the characters kind of hang out with Steve Gutenberg and like read out one of the scenes from from the what Martin Starr's character has written is very charming. And you get some of the Adam Scott and Lizzie Kaplan interplay here and there will they won't they a couple of twists there. They have really good chemistry and are really charming together, too. So um, there's just a lot in here that I quote a lot or think about a lot. So one is they're, when they're drinking wine and Steve Gutenberg, Gutenberg's talking about how if you're ever going to be successful, you need to be able to appreciate fine things like wine. And um, the, the character named Lydia, who's played by um, Megan Mullally, she's like, it just tastes like dirt and like sticks. And me and my wife have quoted that about nice wine a whole lot. It tastes like dirt. <laughs> and there, there's some line readings here when they're doing the the bad wooden reading of the play the first time of the scene the first time through. Kyle, the kind of the dumb blonde guy, pretty boy, has this reading where he's talking to the captain of it's like a, a spaceship sci-fi scene, and he's like. Um, Ed Clark, and um, just the way that he reads it, it comes in my head a lot. Like when somebody is asking someone a question in an awkward way, Ed Clark, it, it just it makes me laugh. So it's kind of like a bright moment in a show that could be very realistic or maybe cynical if you're a little bit more skeptical, I would say. But yeah, I, I love uh, Party Down and I love this episode in particular. At one point, I ranked all 20 episodes of the first two seasons, and I had this one at number two of my second favorite episode of the whole run. So it's it's definitely up there for me. Yeah, I, I do like this writing circle that they've got. Uh, just, I mean, if you write and then hear somebody read it, it's always, you know, it can be kind of a, a cringe-inducing experience. Uh, and I laughed when the the writing partners, you know, they've they've gone through the second revision and now everybody likes it way better and uh, roman that's his name right yeah martin star he says oh how come no one told us we're supposed to rewrite <laughs> it's like where where did you come from you've never heard that before but it made me laugh there's another episode where he meets somebody who's like a fan of what he's written and I, I like that too uh, my favorite character though is their uh, mart is their uh, their manager Oh, yeah. Played by Ken Marino. Yeah, he always makes me laugh. Ron Donald. He's so funny. I never knew who this actor was until I saw the show, Ken Marino. And he appears in usually like kind of edgy and raunchy comedies. And he is hysterical in this role. Oh, another line I like from from this is when they're they're reading the, the script, the wooden time, the first time through when it's very wooden and... They're a character played who Lizzie Kaplan's character is pretending to be in the, the reading just says dies. My character just dies. And the way that she just says dies is very funny to me. And it's what I think about when someone abruptly dies in a, a show or a movie. 
Okay, so Dan, here is my question. Uh huh. What is the connection between this and Sullivan's Travels? So the connection is I wanted to talk about Party Down during movies about making movie month. I think the connection is that the month is too short. Yeah, pretty much. Well, it was a comedy and I wanted another comedy. And so, loyal listeners, we've come to a surprise twist decision here. And that's that we're going to blow up the artificial boundaries we have so far clung to. A month need not be a month. That's right. We're going to go beyond our usual five selections for movies about making movie month. That Five selections is what we do for a typical theme month. And we're going to, I don't, did we decide for sure how many we're going to do? Or are we still noodling on it? I, I don't think so. The door is still open. It could be seven. It could be nine. The only thing it's not going to be is cutting into spooky season. Right. That's our important cutoff. But yeah. But we've definitely got some some good picks. We have an abundance of, of possible choices. And so before we hit record, we, we had an emergency summit and we decided that we are going to expand. Yeah. But I think that brings us to rating here, Brian, our signature section. So always happy to indulge and party down, even if it doesn't quite fit the format. It's a square peg in a round hole, but it's my square peg. Party down. My One of my favorites. I talked about That Thing You Do, my favorite movie, uh, just a couple episodes ago. And here I'm talking about one of my favorite TV shows, squeezing it in here. So <laughs> Your square peg in my round hole. <laughs> So is it good as our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So Brian, is Sullivan's Travels from 1941 good? I think for me, it edges just into six out of eight territory, which we have called very good. It feels pretty unique. In the sense that it's it's got like this mission statement driving it and is kind of dealing with whether it even like deserves to interrogate these themes, whether that's like in and of itself a fool's errand and what do the, the rich and privileged have to say that's of any worth about the lower classes and can that only be a source of comedy? It's it's big ideas that resonate still today. The film jumps around a little bit and the tone swings sometimes wildly, but on the whole, I think it works and is definitely an interesting moment in film history. What are your thoughts, Dan? I'm actually exactly there with you, Brian. I'm at a high end six. I think it's a extremely well-made film. It's really, like you said, unique. It's, more thoughtful than I was expecting. Although the flip side of that is it's not quite as funny as I was expecting. And the plot shape is just not what I was thinking it was going to be. It's not as farcy as farcical farcical. What's the word? I think farcical Mr. Farcy. I don't know, (laughs) but it is, it's a very good film, just charming and watchable. Really like Veronica Lake, uh, like uh, Joel McRae as well. And, it's got some weird tonal shifts and I'm not sure it quite sticks the landing on its theme. Like I'm glad that he was kind of thinking about it and teasing it out. I'm not sure that his insights were all a grand slam, but I I think he 
it's kind of sophisticated how he's trying to figure out what is the value of making comedy, making a film like this for the common man. And it, it actually lands pretty well for me. So I'm going to give it a very good, Brian, uh, an upper end one. And yeah, I don't know, party down how I guess we could rate the episode itself of uh, the Steve Gutenberg episode. We could rate the show as a whole. Sure. Well, what did we do when we discussed the OC episode? We kept it just to the episode, right? I guess in that case, I hadn't seen the whole show. Yeah. Uh, whereas I have seen at least the whole original run of Party Down. But why don't you just rate Steve Gutenberg's birthday since that's what's fresh in our minds? Okay. So for me, I, I would say it's a high five. Uh, positive sentiments overall. I like these characters and I like the setup of this episode specifically where it really gets to be about them. Um, some of the arcs I didn't especially care about, like in this one, um, Ken Marino is like trying to, f he messes up the fish tank and then he's trying to fix the fish tank. Uh, that didn't add too much, but I do really like the, the reading circle and the experience that all the characters get out of it. My favorite episode of the show is the one where they're at a funeral home and Ken Marino gets trapped in a coffin for most of the episode. And then they... <laughs> And he's like smoking pot in there. Yeah, he's he's hotboxing a coffin. And then at the end, they free him and he's having a panic attack after he's been like buried alive in this marijuana cloud. And so that for me is really the high water mark. Uh, and this is a little lower than that. I think that's the previous episode because I think uh, they reference it at the beginning of this episode. Yeah, I think you're right. Or maybe it's one before that. I don't know. But um, for me, this episode is a high end, exceptionally good just so funny, so charming, although I agree with you, there's some inessential bits. In general, the second season has a little bit more of inessential stuff in it, but it's really funny. The characters are so sharply defined. The script is so clever. The way that it uses misdirection, like the whole thing actually with the the fish tank is really clever because for the first like three scenes that we're dealing with that, you think the issue is that Ken Marino is dealing with his alcoholism. But what he's actually dealing with is the fact that he messed up this fish tank by dropping a shrimp in it, even though Steve Gutenberg is like, this is a very valuable art exhibit. Please don't mess with it. And so the way that it kind of cleverly flips that on you, I still like, even though I agree, it's not not every bit in here is, is essential, but it's a very charming episode. And very funny. And Steve Gutenberg plays a loopy version of himself. And you got McLovin in there and um, just a lot of fun references and stuff in here. And it's it's a smart show. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you got Adam Scott and Lizzie Kaplan, lots of sparks and chemistry here. So exceptionally good. And if we were talking the show as a whole, it'd be an easy tour to good for me. Eight out of eight. But even though it's it's not perfect, it's uh, a masterpiece to me. I think show as a whole, I'd probably edge it just into seven. I think the concept is really, really good. Although if you were to include the third season, I might lower it just a little bit, but I don't know. Um, but I, I do love Party Down. So yeah, Brian, thank you for indulging me and, and uh, glad we're back on track for our recording schedule. So what are we going to be discussing next week? Okay, so listeners here in our new and improved and expanded movies about making movies month where where we don't care about the confines of the calendar i have slotted in one i hadn't previously thought of 
And this is because in the last couple of weeks, Dan and I went to see the new Indiana Jones outing. And so I want to take us back to the beginning, not with Raiders of the Lost Ark, per se, but Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation. A fan film that is a shot for shot remake of Raiders made over the course of eight years from 1981 to 1989 by a group of teenagers. Wow. And since you put two selections in this episode, Dan, I, I don't feel guilty making this one two selections. I also want to tack on a documentary from 2015 about this project. Okay. These, these teenagers who spent the 80s recreating Raiders of the Lost Ark. Cool. Yeah, I think it'll be in the spirit of our month here. Because it's, it's, they're making movies. Yeah. They're movies about making movies or something like that. Yeah. Something along those lines. And that's what we aim to provide this month. And maybe we can talk Indiana Jones overall as well next week. Sounds good. Sounds fitting. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Brian and, and listeners. So we'll see you next week on The Goods, a film podcast. Bye, everybody. Oh.